This morning, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Indeed, I overlooked Mason while I was introducing our guest. Sorry about that, Mason. We are glad that you're here today. Also, Jill, good to see you back there as well. Good to have you. Matthew, chapter 8. Begin reading with verse 5. We'll read down through verse 13 as we follow the life of Jesus, more or less chronologically, you understand sometimes it gets difficult to figure out which came first or what incident happened before another, but as best we can, we are following the life of Jesus chronologically through the New Testament. Matthew 8, verse 5 through verse 13. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, My servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers unto me, under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self-same hour. We studied for some three chapters that portion of Matthew we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is nothing more or less than a sample of what is called elsewhere the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. We saw at the conclusion of that sermon and all the way through it, really, that Christ takes a very authoritative stance. In fact, that's what so amazes the crowd about the teaching of Christ is that he does not teach like the scribes do constantly referring to other scribes or to what someone in the past has said, deriving, you see, their authority for what they're saying from what someone else said. Jesus instead, throughout the gospel of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, will say something like this, You have heard that it hath been said of old, and he may quote, what Moses said in the law, or he may quote what perhaps was an understanding of the rabbis in his day, but he'll say, you have heard that it hath been said of old, this, that, or the other, but I say unto you. And the people marveled at his authoritative stance. He didn't teach like the scribes taught. He taught like somebody who had something to say, and somebody who knew what they were talking about. But of course, as we well know in our day, there are many of folks in the religious world who take authoritative stances, claim to be somebodies, the Jim Joneses of our world, if you will, who are glad to tell you and I what we are to believe and what we are to do. And they take the same kind of authoritative stance. As we say, talk's cheap. How do we know? 
that he is in fact the person that he claims to be, the very Messiah of God, the one, the new Moses, who is coming and laying down upon us, as it were, the new law. How do we know? And so the next chapter, after the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, now we come to chapter 8, where Matthew gives us a chapter chalked full of the miraculous, amazing, wonderful deeds of our Lord and our Savior. His utterances, what he says, is now being confirmed by what he does. I quote E.W. Johnson a lot, and E.W. often says this, that Jesus's or Christ's parables are miracles of wisdom. His parables are miracles of wisdom, and his miracles are parables of wisdom. Do you understand? His parables are miracles of wisdom, and his miracles are parables of wisdom. In other words, he was not just doing stuff, walking around, you know, like a superhero in a Saturday morning cartoon, just zapping stuff. But there was a rhyme and a reason to what he did. His miracles are called elsewhere, for instance, by John, signs. And a sign is not just there, it has a meaning behind it. It signifies something. There's wisdom behind the deeds of our Master. And already we saw last week in that amazing encounter with this man who is in the final stages of leprosy, this miraculous cleansing that happened in an instant as Jesus stretched forth his hand and did that unthinkable thing of touching this leper consumed with leprosy and at that same instant saying, I will, and the leprosy departing. It's an amazing thing. But what is even more amazing is the fact that what it teaches us of the character of our Lord. You would think if he was God in the flesh, if he was the Messiah of God, he would be doing everything he could do like you and I to stay away from folks like that. But instead, the very Son of God is coming to the world as a physician. And the physician, you know, if you're a doctor and you don't like being around sick people, May I suggest you're probably in the wrong field. You see, that's what doctors do. That's their calling. That's their job. And so it is that our master comes into this world as a physician, and a physician doesn't go to the whole. He goes to the sick. And that's an amazing thing when you think about it, that if this is God in the flesh, if this is the Messiah of God, what's he doing hobnobbing with people like that? People that are so needy, people that are so unclean, Well, that's his mission. You see, you gain insight into what the miracle meant the more you think about it. Today, we go on to this interesting account of the healing of a centurion's servant. I may, and I made remarks at the time when we were over in John chapter 4, that there is an incident recorded there in John 4 that is very similar to this one. But there are many, many differences. For instance, in John 4, Jesus is not in Capernaum, he's in Cana. Here he's in Capernaum. There was a son sick in Capernaum. Here it's the other way around. In John chapter 4, it was a nobleman. Here it is a centurion. 
In John chapter 4, it was the nobleman's son that lay at death's door. Here it is the centurion's servant. So there are so many differences. And in fact, even the outcome of the the healing. In John chapter 4, Jesus there marvels at their unbelief. Here he marvels at the great faith of the centurion. So about everything that you can imagine is different. So I don't believe those are the same instances at all. But there is a parallel account to this one over in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 7, you'll see an account of the healing of a centurion servant. Same basic account that we have here, except with this difference. In Luke's account, the man himself, the centurion himself, does not come to our Lord. He sends messengers to our Lord asking him to come and heal his servant. And then as Jesus proceeds in that direction to his house, he sends other messengers to intercept him. Now, keep in mind that sometimes this may this supposed difference, this supposed contradiction of these accounts may not be contradictions at all. It may just be the way each is telling their story. We oftentimes ascribe, especially to public figures, the fact that they do things when in fact they didn't do it themselves, someone under them does this. Like we say the president, you know, talked to the premier of China. Well, he may not have done that directly. He may have sent a message through an ambassador, but we ascribe that to his measure. It may be nothing more than a figure of speech. But at the very least, you can see that Matthew 8 and Luke 7 are certainly covering the same incident told as it were from two independent witnesses who witness this event. You'll notice that the miracle involves a Roman centurion. This is a soldier, but he's not just an old buck private. He is a man of rank. A centurion would, as the name implies, have command over a hundred soldiers. Now that was not exact all the time, but that's where the name derived itself from. This man, he is a Gentile, at least by birth. We're not really given enough information to know whether he is perhaps a Jewish proselyte, but I think the evidence tends to point in the opposite direction, that no, he was not a proselyte to the Jewish faith, but he was of that class of Gentiles that sort of hovered around the external worship of God by the Jews that they called the God-fearing ones, the ones who feared God, men from the Gentile world who nevertheless recognized that the God of the Jews was indeed the God of the Bible. Now, a little later, Cornelius, the Roman centurion in Caesarea, where Peter goes and preaches the gospel, is an example of one that the account describes to us as a man who feared God. He wasn't a Jew, he wasn't a proselyte to the Jewish religion, but he recognized that the God of the Jews was indeed the true and only God. He has a servant. Luke's account tells us, now you keep in mind, this isn't just a, somebody under him in authority, so, you know, one of his soldiers. This is a slave. This is someone he owns. Luke tells us, however, that this servant was dear to him and was at the point of death. We find here in Matthew that he is sick of the palsy. Now, some of you may have had some encounter, acquaintance with what's called Bell's palsy. Run into several people. Uh, Fred Zaspel, our good friend pastoring up in Pennsylvania, uh, a couple of years ago, had a problem with Bell's palsy, where one side of the face sort of droops, and he sort of droops and drools, as he describes it. And he said uh, he now understands the Scripture a lot better when it says this man was sick of the palsy. He said, I got sick of the palsy after about a day. I was sick and tired of it. And it lasted for several months before it cleared up. I don't think there's anything they can do for you. You just finally get over it. 
However, this form of palsy, and you begin to see the similarities, it speaks of a paralysis, and this is worse than something like Bell's palsy. Here is a paralysis that is extensive, that is in danger of taking the man's life. He is nigh to death. Both accounts point that out to us. Here in the case, he is grievously tormented with the palsy. So he asked Jesus, whether in person or through his messengers, as Luke suggests, to come and to heal his servant. And Jesus responds very favorably, and at least in Luke's account, actually begins to head in the direction of this man's home. Now that in itself is quite interesting if, as we surmise, this man is a Gentile. You may remember from the account of Acts chapter 10 where Peter, when he goes into Cornelius' household, says, Hey boys, I wouldn't be here. I, I don't hop down. I, I, it's unlawful for me to come into a Gentile's home. Why, they were Jews that bragged upon the fact that they wouldn't even stick their head in the window of a Gentile residence. You know, just stick it in there for a second. They would have no association whatsoever. He would not have fellowship or communion with a Gentile. Wouldn't go into a Gentile's house. But here our Lord is actually heading in that direction. In some cases, we some times wonder what would have been the outcome if he had in fact gone to this Gentile's home. But the Roman centurion tells him, I'm not worthy. Now that in itself is interesting because Luke's account tells us that these messengers that came to Jesus beseeching him to come heal this man's servant are saying how worthy he is. He's worthy. He loves our nation. In fact, they said he's built us a synagogue. This apparently is, I don't know how the military pay is these days, but uh, this guy was doing all right. He had built the Jews a synagogue. You know, he had actually built them a place of worship. So in other words, this man was a prominent man, and the Jews are trying to impress Jesus with how worthy this man is, how much he loves the Jews, and how then Jesus ought to go do this for him. And that makes even more interesting the fact that as Jesus indeed heads in that direction, The man, either in person or sending word by his messenger, says, I'm not worthy. Not worthy that you should put your head under my roof. Maybe that simply is his own sensitivity to the dilemma facing a Jew not to come in to his own home. I don't know. But it certainly is interesting that where the Jews are building this man up, in the sight of Christ, that you ought to go do this for him, he himself does not come on those terms. He comes, rather, not pleading his merit, not pleading his worthiness, but he comes in a very interesting way. He comes in faith. A faith that clearly here lays hold of the ability of Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice that there are many times in Scripture that Jesus marvels at men's lack of faith. O ye of little faith. Thinking of Peter, when that day on the roaring sea of Galilee, when Peter got out of the boat, you know, and made a few tentative steps over the waves and then started sinking, and Jesus had to reach out and grab him and put him back in the boat. He said, O ye of little faith, I've always wondered why he didn't look around on the other disciples and say, O ye of no faith. (laughs) At least Peter got out on the boat. Let's give him that. You know, he had little faith. But there's many times that Jesus marvels because of men's unbelief, that their unbelief is a awe-inspiring thing. It's so unusual. It's such, it's almost miraculous that they don't believe. That's almost how it's approached in Scripture. 
strange thing going on that men would not believe. Marveling at their unbelief. Here he marvels at this man's faith. His great faith, I've told you many times, there's only two places in the New Testament that Jesus ever commends anybody for having mega faith. That's the word in the Greek for great. Mega faith. Only twice. And both times they're Gentiles. Syrophoenician widow, a little later, coming to him crying that Jesus would cast a devil out of her daughter. And then this man, this Roman centurion, whom Jesus speaks of having such great faith, he's never seen the like of it. No, not in all of Israel does he seen something like this man's faith. And as we analyze the situation, I think you can recognize that the centurion's faith here, in a very peculiar way, is laying hold of the ability, the power of Christ. Now, you analyze the situation with the Syrophoenician widow, she seems to be laying hold of Christ's willingness in spite of the obstacles placed in the way that she believed and kept believing that he was willing, that he's good even to folks he doesn't have to be good to. He's gracious to people who don't have any claim on his grace. But here, in the case of this Roman centurion, it is peculiarly the power, the ability of Christ to save. Do you remember in the previous account? The leper came running to Jesus, fell down there on his knees, worshiping him, saying what? Lord, if you will, you can. Very similar to what's going on here. No question that Jesus can do what this man is asking him to do, if he but wills to do it. But the centurion's faith tends to go, shall we say, even a step further than that leper's faith in that the centurion is confident that Jesus can do what he asks by any means that he asks, or any means that he chooses. Now, I want you to consider the importance of this, and I think this is one of the reasons for this account being so prominently placed here. When we say that God is omnipotent, We just don't mean that God can do anything he wants to. That's part of it. Is there anything too hard for me? God will ask in a rhetorical way in the prophets. No, that's the answer. But to say that God is omnipotent, to say that he's all-powerful, just doesn't mean that he can do anything he wants to. It also means he can do it any way he wants to. You ever thought about that? He can do it this way, or he can do it that way. He is not limited to doing it this way or that way. And do you not see that in the ministry of our Lord? Consider his healings for a moment. Look at the way our Lord chose to heal. The means that he employed. I mean, you just take blindness. In one case, he spit on the ground. Made clay of the spittle. Put it on the blind man's eyes. Told him to go wash. And he washed and he saw There's another account where he spit in the eyes. Spit in their eyes. There's another account where he just spoke to blind eyes and said, be open. Just like he spoke to that leper in the previous incident and said, be cleansed. He spoke to a blind man's eyes and said, be opened. Now, I remember a preacher once asked me, is it more spiritual to speak or to spit? You know, which is the more spiritual of these? Well, the point is, if Jesus had done his miracles, his healings, exactly the same way, 
Let's say every single time he spat on the ground, made clay, rubbed it on the, the diseased portion of the body, and they went and washed it off, and they were healed. Let's suppose every single healing he did was done that way. What do you suppose we'd have today? I mean, on Channel 40, you know, Benny Hinn would be up there spitting, making clay, rubbing it on. In other words, the idea is, is that there is some magic in the means. That would be our supposition. And yet Jesus' miracles don't allow you to come to that conclusion. Sometimes he makes clay, sometimes he spits in the eyes, sometimes he just speaks through the eyes. And here we have an amazing encounter. Well, he goes on to say, after commending this man for his faith, that there's a lot of folks from the Gentile world that are going to come and sit down with the Jewish forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And a lot of these folks who think they're in the kingdom are not going to make it. He warns them about that. Well, let me quickly elaborate on what I was just saying. I'm sort of skipping around here a little bit. But notice that the remarkable thing about this healing, how it stands different from some of the others that we see, is that it is what I would call long-distance healing. Healing at a distance. And why is that fact important? Well, as we said a moment ago, maybe, if you'd lived in that day, maybe, you would have come to the conclusion that Jesus' power to heal lies in the means that he employs. I mean, one of the men writing the Gospel account, Luke, is in fact himself a physician, isn't he? He's a doctor. Don't you suppose that Luke was watching, and he was watching real closely, to see what he could learn from Jesus? You know, maybe this he's got some tricks. Maybe he's got some medicine that the rest of us don't know anything about. And so, you know, no doubt he can heal these folks. And if I can just learn this medicine, then I'll be able to heal like he heals. I mean, after all, we have faith in our doctors, we say. But our faith in a doctor really is not in the man himself. Maybe it's in the knowledge that he has. But basically, nine times out of ten, it's in his skillful use of some medicine. You know, some shot you get or a pill you take or operation he performs. But it's not really in the man himself. Are you with me here? You understand what I'm saying? It's the means. That's where the healing is. It's in that pill. It's in that shot. It's in that operation. Maybe that's what's going on with the healings of Jesus. Or maybe his power is simply psychological. You know, maybe he's dealing with a bunch of people that have all these psychosomatic illnesses. You do understand that there is a power in suggestion. I can recall, I was playing baseball my senior year in high school, and we were going over to this little town on the other side of the county to play ball one afternoon, and Coming back through McKinney, Texas, we, our bus broke down at the red light. There's only one red light those days in McKinney, and the bus broke down at the red light. I don't know what happened, can't remember, really didn't care. It was like a day off for us from then on. I mean, there was a Dairy Queen right there on the corner, so all of us bailed off the bus and left the bus driver and the coach to worry about getting the bus going. We spent the rest of the afternoon sitting around the Dairy Queen. Well, we, you know, we were always playing these little tricks and, we decided that we would get out there. I mean, this was the main street, main drag in McKinney, you understand? We were going to get out there and start pointing to something up in the sky. 
So here's the whole baseball team. I mean, we're out there and we're looking, and man, there were people that came out and man, they'd be looking. I didn't. It wasn't the fact that they were looking. It was when they started seeing. I mean. <laughs> There truly were people, yeah, I, I think I see it. You know, it's right up there. And, you know, there is a power to suggestion, sort of this crowd hysteria thing. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe we can explain. Maybe it's the placebo effect. You know, these folks are told that they're healed, so they get better. Well, may I say already, we would run into a number of problems with those kinds of explanations. First of all, the severity of the diseases that Jesus is dealing with. Folks, this is not your galloping rheumatism here, or an ache, or a pain, or a headache. This is leprosy in its advanced stages. This is blindness. This is deafness. In some cases, this is deadness. It's like the old story about the Christian science fellow, you know, that believed that all illness and disease is just in your mind, just mind over matter to be healed. And his friend came up to see him. His wife was in the hospital. How's your wife? She real sick? He says, oh, no, she's not sick. She just thinks she's sick. The next day he came back, saw him again in the hall, says, How's your wife today? She better? He says, No, now she thinks she's dead. You see, you've got a problem if it's just mind over matter. Once they're dead, how do you get dead folks to think certain ways? You understand what I'm saying? And I'm being facetious here, but we're not dealing with the normal little aches and pains and psychological feeling bad that kind of stuff. We're dealing with objective things. And notice, the other thing that argues against this is the instantaneous nature of the cure. Here Jesus no sooner simultaneously touches that leper and says, I will, and his leprosy is gone. This is not a case of him touching a contagious man, an unclean man, and somehow being contaminated by that man's uncleanness. It's the other way around. The uncleanness of the man is instantly eradicated. By the virtue, by the healing power of our Lord. So this is hardly those kinds of cases. But any remaining notion that you might have about there being some power in the means being used is eradicated by this account, by this miracle. Because notice that in this case, there was no means employed at all. In this case, it couldn't have been mind over matter, psychosomatic, because the man being healed didn't even know what was going on. He wasn't even there. He's somewhere else. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is something peculiar about this kind of healing. The man healed doesn't even know what has healed him. All he knows is he's better. He's healed instead of sick. Oh, it's a remarkable faith. And you'll notice his reference here in explaining his faith in Christ. He makes reference to military authority. Now, I've never been in the military. Can't say that I've missed anything by that experience from what I hear. Uh, but I know several of you have a lot of experience of how the military works. And what he is describing here is exactly how someone in authority in the military does his job. When he needs something done, well, you know, it's one thing if he's just sitting there at his desk and there's a pencil over here and he has to get a pencil, he reaches and gets it. But if he needs something done at long distance, 
over on the other side of the base. Chances are the fellow who's the commander, the one who has the authority, is not going to get up and do it himself. He gives an order. Someone under his authority, he says to him, go, and he goes. Come, and he comes. Do this, and he does it. I mean, from what I hear, that's the way the military works. You know, you need to dig a, a, a hole dug over here. The, the commander-in-chief doesn't go dig it. He tells you to dig it. Am I, am I wrong there? You know, have I been misled all this? I, I suspect that that's probably exactly how it works. That's what this military man, this centurion, is describing. I know how authority works. I know that the one in authority doesn't have to do the thing himself. All he has to do is give an order to speak, and it's done. Do you understand what this man is therefore implying in the case of our Lord? I recognize the authority in your person. You don't have to come to my house. You don't have to set foot under my roof. All you've got to do is speak, and it'll be done. Now that is amazing faith when you think about it. A faith that certainly overcomes a number of obstacles. You know, we tend to think that we believe God can do anything. And we say, yeah, we believe that. We believe God's sovereign. We believe nothing's impossible with God till we get up against something hard. You ever notice that? Isn't that a contradiction of terms? That our faith tends to be real strong in the easy stuff, but not the hard stuff. You know, in practice, in theory, we believe in this great big God who can do anything, He can do it any way He wants to. In practice, we get a little more narrow. Well, I'm not real sure. When the back's against the wall. But here this Roman centurion has this utter confidence in the ability of Christ to merely speak. He says, I know the score here. I know how this thing works. I'm a man set under authority. I have men under me in authority. I know what has to happen. All you got to do is say the word. And he says it. Well, may I say that it is this teaching, this concept of the authority in apostolic preaching. What, what is it? What did they tell them to believe? What did they tell them to do? What, what, what did they present to, to lost men? What did they tell them? And I was going to take you on a little tour, and I don't know if we'll have time for this or not. But you go to the book of Acts and you look at the preaching the apostles did that in that book to lost men. And surely that's our model. I mean, that's how we're supposed to do it. How they did it, that's how we ought to be doing it. And nine times out of ten, what they'll do is they will set Jesus enthroned in the heavens on the throne of God with all power in heaven and earth in his hands before the eyes of the men to whom they preach. And basically the sense of the thing is this. You see that man on that throne? Do you see that Jesus, the one that was slain, the one that was put to death, the one that's risen from the dead, the one that God has exalted, the one that God has said it is right in? Do you see him on the throne? That man can do for you what you need done. That's what they tell him. Now I'm elaborating, paraphrasing, you understand, but that's in a nutshell, that's it. You, you see that Jesus on that throne? They don't take them to a Jesus in a manger. They don't take them to Jesus healing by the shores of Galilee. They don't even, and this is the strange thing about the book of Acts, they don't even point them to a Jesus hanging on a cross, a dead Jesus. They point them to a Jesus in throne. All power in heaven and earth. Who once was slain. A lamb that had been slain. 
but was now alive and alive forevermore. Do you see that, Jesus? Do you understand the power in the name of that person, the God-man, Jesus Christ? In his name, what the law couldn't do for you. In one place, Paul preaches this way. What the law, whom the law could not justify. In his name, it can be done. Under his authority, in his power, there is power to do for you what the law can't do, what no one else can do for you. Or we see glimpses, as we said last week, in these very utterances of our Lord to a leper. He says, be clean, and he's clean. To blind eyes, deaf ears, be open, they're open. To the waves and the wind on the Sea of Galilee, be still. And that's the sampling of this authority that is in the name of Jesus Christ. And more amazing than that. There is one thing more amazing, and it's not, by the way, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's small potatoes compared to what I'm about to tell you. When he stood over a man who was a sinner and said, Thy sins be forgiven. That's the hard stuff. That's what it took the cross. You say, what gave him that power? What enabled him to say to a sinner, your sins are forgiven? The cross is what enabled him to say that. So there is this sense in which we are not, uh, I guess I guess we could say, where's the beef? You remember that commercial a few years ago, where's the beef? Let me put it this way to you this morning. Where's the power? The power to save. Where is it? Now the Roman Catholics will tell you, they know where it is. It's in the church. The power to save is deposited within the Roman Catholic Church and her priests are able to dispense it to you through the sacraments. You need it, they got it. And they can dispense it to you. And you say, well, that's absurd. Well, our Church of Christ friends say that it's in the waters of baptism. That's where it is. There's where the beef is, the power to save. That's where it happens. That's the means, if you will. Do you understand when we got a while ago when we were talking about the means? Does the power lie in the means, the spit on the ground? Is that where the power is? Those are, oh, it's over there in the baptismal pool. In some cases, some will say, well, it's in walking this aisle. Responding to the altar call. Isn't it strange that the altar becomes this up here? Where did we ever get that kind of thinking from Scripture? That this is in any sense an altar. And somehow coming up here, you're coming to Christ. Somehow walking that aisle, the magic carpet, that you have somehow come to Christ, coming to the preacher, the magic man who can dispense it. Do you, do you understand where I'm... Or there are those more orthodox, to be sure, and certainly many in our own circles who would say, well, it's all found in understanding certain doctrines. That if we just understand the sovereignty of God, if we understand the doctrine of election and predestination and those things, then you've got it. That's where the power is. And I'm telling you, well, I just don't seem to find that in the New Testament. I see those things certainly taught and certainly true, but I don't see lost men confronted with those things saying, yeah, you've got to believe this, and if you believe this, you've got it, and you've got the power. I find instead that uh, 
Jesus saying, search the scriptures, for in them ye think you have eternal life. And they are they which testified me. And you will not come unto me that you might have life. We have multitudes in our day, better taught perhaps than the Roman Catholic, but believing that they have eternal life because they believe a verse of Scripture. They've been taught a regeneration by proposition. Oh, it's not baptismal regeneration, it's propositional regeneration. You believe this, you believe this, you believe this, I nod my head to those things, bingo, you're saved. All of those things, notice that what we're saying is there's power in this means right here. What I'm suggesting to you, that the power is in the person of that one seated on that throne. Now, therein lies the importance of doctrine. You may think that I'm up here saying, well, you shouldn't have to worry about all these doctrines. Oh, no, my friend, because if you're going to understand which Jesus it is that you need to go to, you're going to have to understand doctrine. There's the value of doctrine. It tells us what Jesus we're talking about. Is he the Jesus of the Docetics? who said that he wasn't really real, he wasn't really human, he just looked that way, he's just a ghost walking around in human, you know, God-in-a-man suit sort of thing? Or is he the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses that say, well, he's not big God, he's just sort of sort of God, he's little God, he's, you know, Superman but sub-God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Which Jesus are we going to go to? I mean, you go down to South America, half the folks down there named Jesus. Jesus. They're all named Jesus. Which Jesus? Which one? What does he look like? I mean, you see, that's the value of doctrine to find it. You say, I know Mark Webb. There are two Mark Webbs, by the way, in Olive Branch. Do you all know that? I've had people call me and get the other one. He must be a nice guy because he hasn't phoned me up yet and bawled me out. But uh, at any rate, there's another. You say, well, I know Mark Webb. He's that real tall, ugly fella. I say, well, you just don't know the one I know, you know. He's, he may have the same name, but that's not the one I know. You see, doctrine has this effect, is that it defines the Jesus that we're talking about. Which one? Which one? May I read you something that came to me from uh, John Piper up at Bethlehem Baptist Church in the Minneapolis St. Paul. Good man. He says, uh, here, let me give you one illustration so that you can count the cost, whether you want to be part of a fellowship that will have to pay the price of controversy, saying this to his church. He says, last September, I wrote an editorial that was printed in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. It had to do with the deity and supremacy of Jesus Christ, and specifically it had to do with whether Christians should try to win Jewish people to Christ. In it, I said, according to the New Testament... Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. He's the yes to all God's promises. He's the Messiah. To reject him is to reject God the Father. To confess him as Lord of your life is to be reconciled to God. And he quotes some scripture here. Even though it is perceived as offensive by many Jewish people, the call for prayer that Israel would believe on her Messiah is a profoundly loving act. For he who does not have the Son does not have the life. In other words, if you don't worship Jesus, you don't worship God. This is what it means to educate on the basis of the radical truth that Jesus is God. And if we do this, he's now speaking to the congregation, we will bring out strong opposition. 
four pastors of major influential churches in Minneapolis, three Protestant, one Catholic, signed a letter to the editor that said this, The Reverend Piper claims that the appeal to pray that Jewish people accept Jesus as their Messiah is a profoundly loving act. But genuine love does not harbor the kind of aggressive agenda that is implicit in the visions of Christianizing the world. Love, including the agape that lies at the heart of the Christian gospel, is more respective and less intrusive and more open and less controlling than that. Unfortunately, arrogant is the right word to describe any attempts at proselytizing. In this case, the effort of Christians to win over their Jewish brothers and sisters. Thoughtful Christians will disassociate themselves from any such effort. Do you understand that this is part of the problem? What Jesus are we talking about? Therein lies the value of doctrine. But my friend, if you think that believing correct doctrine is going to get you into heaven's door, think again. Old B.B. Caldwell says to his old preacher boys down in New Orleans Seminary, it's hard to say cemetery, seminary, about 50 years ago, he says some of you boys just as straight as gun barrels and just as empty. A whole generation of Jews went to hell believing in election and believing they were the predestined and the elect of God. Never forget it. No, you better find it. The beef, the power is in this person. And so Jesus indicates that a surprise is in the wings, in the offing. Something very unexpected is about to happen. A whole lot of folks who seem to be out yonder are going to get in. And some of these folks who assume that they're in are going to be cast out. You did read that part of this. Men are going to come from the east, south, north, west, all these directions. He's talking about the Gentile world. They're going to come and they're going to sit down with your forefathers. This Gentile's faith, you see, is what seems to spur this this thing, in, in this thinking in the heart of our Lord. You see what this Gentile has done. You see the faith that he has demonstrated in me. This is a token of what you're going to see, that Gentiles are going to flood into the kingdom. They're going to sit down with your forefathers and you, the children of the kingdom, you who seem to be shoe-ins, are going to be left out. Historically, that is precisely what happened. The kingdom promised to the Jews. Founded upon their covenants, promised to their forefathers, is in fact inherited by the likes likes of me and you. As far as I know, Beth is our only Jewish princess in the whole congregation. The rest of us, as far as I know, don't have one corpuscle of Jewish blood flowing in our veins. And yet here we are today embracing by faith a Jewish Messiah. Reading a book written by a bunch of Jews, Hebrew prophets, to them. Isn't that strange? That's what Jesus is talking about. Now before you get feeling too sorry for folks, do do understand that they fall because of unbelief. We were at the uh, rehearsal dinner, Marcello and Mitzi's the other night, and Mike Thank you for that. We uh, 
I, I sort of think we'll do that every Friday night on Mike's tab. I told him he, when he walked in this morning that he sure looked a lot lighter today, especially in the pocketbook. Uh, those weddings will do that to you. I speak from experience. But anyway, we were over at the Steak and Ale. Wonderful dinner. And we were sitting down there with Sue and Charlie sort of at the far end out there by the door. And there was a bunch of plates right across from us. First, we sat down there. They had some food sitting. They had some salad sitting there. And a little while, no, nobody sat there. So they came and got it took it away. I, if I'd known that, we'd have been eating that too. But, uh, uh, you know, suppose, and I'm sure this wasn't the case, but suppose that Mike was paying for those places. You know, they're supposed to be there. Somebody had committed to come. Some of the family, perhaps, supposed to be there, and they didn't show up. And suppose he's going to have to pay for those things anyway. Well, you know, Mike just might say, well, okay, well, just rather than seeing those go to waste, somebody go out there on the street. Let's see if we can find some homeless folks and bring them in here and sit down there. I mean, you know, it's just going to go to waste. These people didn't want it. It was for them, had their name tagged there on the plate. But they weren't coming. They turned up their nose at it. They had better things to do. So somebody go out and see if you can find some poor folks out there that don't have enough money come in here and eat this steak dinner. Could bring them in, let them eat. Now Mike didn't do that, but uh, I suppose you know it didn't work that way. But you understand he could have. Do you understand that's precisely what happens in the New Testament? That these who were the specially invited guests, one and all, turned up their nose and said, "We got better things to do." And the king says, "All right, go out there in the street." Find some lame folks, some blind folks, some poor folks who don't have anything better to do and bring them in. Fill my house. And my folks, that's why I'm in today. That's why I'm here. A poor folk like me. Haunt, maimed, blind, unclean, vile. I'm sure thankful somebody turned up their nose. I don't know who this name is sitting here at my plate. I don't I can't even hardly read the language, but I sure glad he didn't want to come because that opened the door for me. What about you? You see, it's the contemporary scene today. Those who thought to be shoe ins don't make it, and every now and then God just reaches out here in the trash heap and picks up somebody. Do you not see that? Look around. Look around, folks. How many of us? Many were raised in Christian homes, but many of you weren't. Many of you raised in a lie, false doctrine, deceived. Some of you raised in ungodly situations. It is not always those who seem to be the shoe-ins who sit down at that table. Sometimes God surprises us all. Mm. The marvel of His grace. Can I Can I close? I'm... Re- um, um, Gone too long, as usual. Can I just read just one little incident sort of illustrates what I'm talking about? Hope this gives you some encouragement. Her worst fears had come true. Her son had become involved in a strange Eastern religion. She had such high hopes for him. Since his infancy, she had prayed that God would touch his life. Her husband wasn't a Christian, and sometimes in a temper, he would taunt her for her praying, but she kept on. The son grew up in a small town. The family owned their home, but they weren't very wealthy by any means. Determined that their son would have a good education, they scrimped and saved to send him to school. He did extremely well in his studies. His teachers began to notice his brilliant mind, and a prominent citizen of the town set up a scholarship for her son's graduate studies. She was so proud, but her joy diminished with concerns about his spiritual health. 
He attended church some, but he refused baptism, and there were little incidents like stealing. She worried about him. She prayed harder. He excelled in graduate school and finished with high expectations, but his faith. His letters contained long explanations of finding true reality and speculation how reality divided into darkness and light. Jesus was not truly God incarnate, he said, but an example of pure light entrapped in suffering and matter. He had always been good with words, but these words wounded her. She decided to visit him. She thought her heart could stand no more pain, but she was wrong. He was living with a girl, and they were not married. They had a son. She was a grandmother, but she couldn't be proud of it. In desperation, she explained the situation to her pastor. He told her that the son of so many tears and prayers could never come to destruction. Somehow, the message seemed from God. The years passed. Her son was unhappy with his job. He's often ill. He left the girl but kept the son. And finally, he became disillusioned with his Eastern religion and began to question her about God. He started to attend church again. There he found Christian friends and questioned them, and he began to read the Bible. Her prayers increased. Her husband died, but he had become a Christian in his final illness. She too grew weaker, older, and she feared she would die before the prayers for her son were answered. Her grandson was now a teenager, and she went to visit. A changed son met her. A son hungry to know about God, asking questions, requesting prayer. A son who would one day rush to tell her he had given his life to God by trusting in Jesus Christ. On Easter, her son and grandson were baptized. Their times together now were so precious, talking about the Lord, praying together. Her prayers overflowed with thanks, but still she desired much more for her son. She knew her son as a Christian for less than a year. In August, after his baptism, she breathed her last and went to be with the Lord to whom she had spent her life talking. She never saw with earthly eyes the great man of God her son became. She never heard his great sermons or read writings that determined much of Christian theology. She never knew her son's insights would jog Martin Luther into seeing that one is justified by faith alone. She would never hear her son's words that caused so many hearts to consider Jesus as Savior. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. The mother who prayed so fervently and so long for her son was named Monica, a testament to faithful prayer. Her son, the prodigal, who came home to Christ is none other than Augustine. Augustine lived about the year 400 A.D., and certainly his theology had such a tremendous impact on Luther and Calvin and the other men of the Reformation in recapturing the blessed truth of justification by faith. May that encourage you. You see, God, He throws curveballs. <laughs> we never know. He's going to pull a switcheroo on us. The one who seems to be a shoe-in is left out. Oh, my friend, you sitting here today, especially you children, Sunday after Sunday under the sound of the gospel, godly parents, a Christian home, oh, you seem certain to be included, may I say. Take nothing for granted. Do not presume upon God's grace. You must find 
Christ. You must come to faith to Him. You'll not enter heaven on your parents or your grandparents' coattails. You must come to faith in Christ. But on the other hand, you who are out there and you have children or loved ones that seem so far away, no hope whatsoever for them, may this be an encouragement to you. That God is known to reach out into a burning pile of branches and to pluck one from the fire, still smoking the smell of fire all over it, but rescues one by His grace. Let's pray. Father, there is power in the name of Jesus, power to save to the uttermost. Father, may we be enabled, may words not fail us to try to present that theme, that grand theme before the ears of our hearers today. Help us, Father, to magnify. For, Father, we cannot exaggerate it. We cannot overvalue. We cannot go beyond the testimony of Scripture that there is none so far gone that the blood of our Lord cannot cleanse. Lord, may you bring them. Father, we plead, we pray to you in acknowledgement of the fact that There is not in them the desire to come. There is not in them the willingness. Father, that's why we pray to you. We ask you to change men's heart, to do that which only you can do. So, Father, would you work in the hearts of these, our loved ones, our friends, our children, our parents, these around about us, our fellow workers, our fellow students. Lord, we plead with you today, salvage, reclaim. Redeem these lost ones for the sake of Jesus, your Son. Extend His kingdom in this world. Magnify your grace. Glorify the saving power of the name of Jesus Christ by astounding us, by shocking us with what you're able to do. And may we, Father, come to you in faith, knowing, O Lord, that if you are willing, there is nothing that will stand before the onslaught of sovereign grace. Do it for Christ's sake. In His name we pray. Amen.